Two weeks ago, um, we looked at verses 18 through 20 in Colossians chapter 2. And we saw that three things, pretend humility, the worship of angels, and detailed visions, will cause a religious person to be puffed up without reason by his uh, passionate, unregulated mind. A puffed up mind cannot be qualified for salvation. Um, so to think highly of yourself is to remove yourself from need of the gospel of mercy. So if salvation is a matter of faith and not of works, lest any man boast, then we don't want to have a puffed up mind. Amen? So the warning of 18 through 20 is about three things which by doing we might become disqualified for grace and mercy. Um, Dale Ralph Davis, who is among my favorite preachers, uh, but is far more well known for writing commentaries, Dale Ralph Davis interprets this word from which we get asceticism. He interprets it as uh, scraping humility and agrees with me that what's in view here is a projection of humility rather than the possession of humility. Worship of angels is understood by scholars to mean either actually singing praises to and worshiping angelic beings or being in such an ecstatic state of the worship of God that you believe you've reached the point where you're worshiping just like the angels worship him. Either interpretation works for me, right? <clears throat> I find it easier to apply that second interpretation because I haven't met many people who are you know, struggling with the desire to worship angels, but that, that might just be around the corner. Maybe that's something that you've run into culturally. And either way, uh, you, you, you are making shipwreck if you're engaged in angel worship. At the, end of the, at the end of the day, it seems to me that the idea Paul is communicating is that through self-denial and the corresponding personal misery of self-denial, or the corresponding uh, elevated view of yourself as a worshiper, either way, we make ourselves unsuitable as worshipers of God. Detailed visions are the third strand of this cord of disqualification. It seems obvious to me that Paul is talking about the propensity of so-called people of God throughout history to invent new ideas about God, to use their imaginations rather than his word and to use their hallucinations rather than what he's clearly revealed or commanded. And this is a problem that has surfaced at regular intervals throughout history, even Old Testament history. Jeremiah is told by God to say in Jeremiah 8, 8 and 9, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise man shall be put to shame. Um, they will be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? And then church history, church history is rife 
with examples of people exchanging God's word for their own imaginations, um, like claiming to have prophecies and new revelations. So Paul views these three, scraping humility, worship of angels, detailed visions, he views them all as pickpockets, and these things threaten to defraud the Christian, not enhance or augment them. So I told the illustration of uh, Dancer's image winning the Kentucky Derby and then being disqualified a couple of days later because they found a chemical in the horse's urine that shouldn't have been there. Um, and, and the reason that I use that illustration is because what Paul is talking about is this idea, not, that, not so much that you disqualify yourself by cheating, but that you get disqualified by someone else because you fall for their shtick, their nonsense. So there's these false teachers, obviously in Colossae, that he's combating. So he's saying, instead of pursuing self-deprivation in an effort to get Christian clout, instead of pursuing like emotional experiences and worship in order to impress either yourself or someone else, instead of indulging your imagination to have a breakthrough uh, or get a new word from God, what he wants us to do, it's way more boring, way less exciting and titillating, but he wants us, what he wants us to do is just hold fast to Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is telling you that what you need today is the same thing you needed when you first became a Christian. Uh, I mean, it, it's, I feel like, um, I mean, some of us can remember, I realize that this is a, a pretty dated illustration, but I had a CD Walkman, and if you took it in the car, as long as you stayed on a smooth road, you were good to go. But the minute you hit a bump, it would bounce back just a few seconds. And I recognize that it sounds like I've only got three or four sermons because we keep coming back to this idea and back to this idea. And I feel like I've got to warn you that today is no exception. We just hit a bump and we're going back. So we're at 20. If, if with Christ, Colossians 2.20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Some of you have had the uh, extremely unfortunate experience of screwing up a do-it-yourself project. Um, you're drilling into the drywall to insert an anchor and you smell smoke and the power goes out. And what's happened is you've just drilled into your electrical conduit. Thankfully, you're still alive, but you're gonna have to call a professional electrician out now to repair it. And you're gonna be doing drywall and painting or you, 
Maybe you got to call somebody for that too. Or you're cutting out subfloor. Uh, and you think you've mapped things out pretty well, but you start to hear the sound of rushing water and realize that you sliced open a copper pipe in the floor. And now whatever's beneath that is ruined, the ceiling, the floor below, any electronics that got wet. What you were doing was one thing and what you accomplished was quite another. Maybe you're replacing your fuel injectors. And you don't realize that one of the O-rings in the bottom of the injector was uh, like remained lodged in the engine. And so when you put in the new fuel injectors, you had an O-ring stacked on top of an O-ring and fuel sprayed everywhere when you started the vehicle and fouled your catalytic converters. And so now you got to come up with $1,600 worth of catalytic converters. I don't know. Just as an example. <laughs> We'll come back to these illustrations in a few minutes, okay? Answering the rhetorical question that is asked by verse 20, why do you submit yourself to these regulations when you are free in Christ, requires that we understand what regulations Paul has in view, or we could wind up in serious error. I'm not going to go into what the serious error might be right now, I'm going to let you get there on your own as you become increasingly anxious while I'm preaching that I am an antinomian, licentious reprobate. Amen. So let's state, let's state the burning question. What freedom does dying with Christ afford me? Earlier in chapter 2, looking at verses 11 through 14, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What we said when we covered uh, those verses, and by the way, me saying we is clearly a rhetorical device uh, meant to induce you into presuming that you agree with me, right? Was really, it was me that said these things because I was preaching, but in the intervening time, nobody has come to me and said they disagreed. So you agreed by your silence, right? So what we said when we were covering those verses was that the following spiritual realities exist. I'm giving you a second chance to disagree, okay? In verse 11, he tells you that whatever needed to be removed from you in order to be in fellowship with God has already been removed, uh, but not through some physical modification. Verse 12 clarifies, you died to sin. You ceased. You stopped. Verse 13 tells you that while you were dead, God made you come to life. You had no life, then God brought you to life. Right? Uh, what does that mean? Well, that means that you had no breath and he gave you breath. You couldn't see and he opened your eyes. You couldn't hear, 
and he opens your ears. You were spiritually paralyzed. You could not move. And he gave you the ability to move. Verse 14 tells you that the means by which God did these things was dealing with the legal debt that you carried. Legal debt. That debt, if you are a Christian, was dealt with by the substitutionary atonement of his son. We use words like that, and depending on how Southern Baptist you are, you get a little uncomfortable. And I don't, it's okay to be uncomfortable with that word. It's not, a, it's not straight out of the Bible. It's a theological, doctrinal concept. The idea being, I brought the sin. Jesus brought the obedience. I gave him my sin. He gave me his obedience. And then he paid the price for my sin as my substitute. He made atonement. For my sin as the substitute. If you are a Christian, your sin, not part of it, but all of it was nailed to the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when Christ died, hey, <laughs> Ellie, oh, can't help but notice that uh, Grace and Jesus' baby is being real quiet. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Jenny. If you're a Christian, all of your sin was nailed to the cross and in the person, in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are a Christian, it's limited to those who are in Christ. We're not Unitarian. We don't believe that Jesus died for everybody. There are categorical and catalogical limitations to the word all every time it appears in Scripture. So the Unitarian, we'll leave it there, will tell you that all means all, right? All, God, Jesus died for all, God desires all men everywhere to repent. All means all. Okay, well, the, all can't mean all because there's a whole bunch of people throughout history who have died refusing to believe in Jesus Christ and there's no way that his atonement covers them. They don't want it to. Uh, so if you're a Christian is like a really important prepositional statement, phrase, whatever. These things are not true for you if you're not a Christian. When Christ died, you died. Well, not if you're not a Christian. You didn't. It's still you. You're still alive and in charge. When Christ became sin, if you're a Christian, you were justified. Not if you're not a Christian. You are outside the justification of Jesus Christ if you're not a believer. When Christ rose, you were given life. If you are a Christian, you have life in Jesus Christ. So the means by which you died and came back to life was all Jesus Christ. It was not your own doing. It was not something you accomplished. Amen? Right, so your debt's paid. Listen to me. You owe nothing else to God. Your debt's paid. You cannot add to what's already been done. You cannot augment your justification. You cannot enhance God's pleasure with you. You can't make God more, even a little bit more impressed with you. You can't increase God's satisfaction with you. It's done. The debt's paid. You're one of his children now, period. 
So, if you are a Christian and those things are true of you, what do you want to do now? What do you want to do now? Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What do you want to do? You're free. Free from sin, free from the curse, free from guilt, free from death and hell. What do you want to do? Look at verse 8. Do you want to be taken captive again? Look at verse 16. Do you want to be under someone else's judgment again? Look at verse 18. Do you want to be defrauded, ripped off, robbed? All right, now look back at me. The answer is no. What do you want? What do you want to do now that you're free in Christ? Uh, verse 6, look at verse 6. As you received Christ, so walk in him. Jump down to verse 19. He, he says it in the negative. I'm going to say it in the positive. Hold fast to Christ, from whom all his people are nourished and knit together, in whom all his people grow with a growth that is from God. What do you want to do? And reminder, the question that we're trying to answer is this. What freedom does dying with Christ afford me? What freedom do I have because I died with Christ? And I've developed this question as a rhetorical tool from what's written in verses 20 and 21. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Well, here's the deal, right? Okay. Uh, some of you don't care because you're not old enough to care about these things. And I'm sorry. I'll illustrate it for you maybe if I remember in a minute. For the rest of us. Uh, we, we bought Kate a car. We had help from the grandparents. Um, but it wasn't a new, we didn't buy her a new Mustang or Ferrari, right? Because I don't, I don't make that kind of money. So we got her a used car that has had at least two other owners before her, okay? It is reprehensibly immoral that I had to pay sales tax on that car. You know why? How many times has the value of that car now been taxed? At least three. The government has gotten a piece every time it's been sold. How much money have the second three owners from the dealership made on this car? Zero, because it depreciates in value every year from the moment you drive it off the lot. It is criminal. It is morally reprehensible that you pay sales tax on used cars. Our forefathers done would have already burned Washington, D.C. down. <laughs> but here we are acting like it's fine, me included. Right? Now, I bring that up to say, when you die, that's when you stop paying taxes. You're no longer subject to the IRS when you die. They can't do... 
What are they going to do? Yeah, but it's not you. You don't care. You're, you're hopefully in glory, right? You'd be like, whatever. My state got taxed. The government and an additional criminality figured out how to tax dead people. Listen, you don't care. You're dead. Hopefully walking streets of gold, right? When you die, you can't be audited by the IRS. When you die, you can't be tried for a crime. They can go through the motions if they, you know, set a little effigy of you up in the courtroom, but you're not there. You don't care. You cease to be subject to the rules and regulations of the society around you. Similarly, when we die, we die to sin and and are raised in new life with Christ, we cease to be subject to the religious traditions and errors which all sinners are subject to. For example, the Orthodox Jew is kosher and all that that means. The Muslim won't eat pork or touch alcohol. Although that doesn't stop them from selling alcohol to all the infidels. The Mormon won't drink anything caffeinated, but I I think they own Coca-Cola. Fundamentalist Baptists allegedly won't drink liquor. The Catholic won't eat Uh, meet on Fridays during Lent. The former Catholic won't eat fish on Friday. (laughs) The Sabbatarian won't watch a football game on a Sunday. This one's more interesting. The atheist and most agnostics won't examine the evidence for a creator. That's part of their religion. Okay. The devout leftist won't hire the most competent person for a job. The right-winger is still trusting the plan that QAnon told him about. <laughs> These are religions. The Unitarian won't open his Bible, and on and on and on we could go. The Christian has died and is no longer subject to the regulations which relate to what Paul calls elemental spirits of the world. So eat bacon if you want, have a glass of wine if you want, have a cup of coffee if you want, eat steak on Friday during Lent if you want, watch football on Sunday if you want, because these things perish with use. Um, Referring to all things that I'm sorry, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. So now it seems to me that what Paul's saying there is, look, even according to just human understanding, whatever you eat does what it's going to do. And then what's left passes out of you. Right. And and remember, Mark 7, uh, 18, Jesus says to the disciples, are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person um, f- from outside can't defile them since it enters not his heart but his stomach as, and is expelled? And then there's this parenthetic that says, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So what are you going to eat? 
that's going to ruin your relationship with God as it passes through your digestive system. A more interesting way to ask this question is, what are you going to not eat that's going to improve your relationship with God as it passes through your digestive system? Now see, the legalist, and we all are, the legalist can make sense of, well, there's some things, if I don't eat them, I'm more spiritual. But you can't find anything that in eating it, you become more spiritual. It doesn't work that way. You can only taint yourself. That's how legalists think. Uh, I wrote the encyclopedia, trust me. <laughs> Granted. Oh. Not a lot of college students. We got a couple, but... All right, I'm going to say this anyway. Getting absolutely hammered at a college party doing jello shots and Jaeger bombs is not what Paul has in view here and not what Jesus had in view in Mark 7. There's a clear prohibition in the Bible on drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, suggesting that you can be one or the other. Right. So for the Christian, if you've ever been you know, on the edge or over it into drunkenness, you know there is a diminishing influence of the Holy Spirit on your faculties as the influence of alcohol increases. Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And then Galatians 5 lists drunkenness as one of the deeds of the flesh which the Spirit wages war against. Um, I said, watch football on Sunday if you want. Here's the exception. Like regularly skipping church to go golfing would be a violation of the imperative of Hebrews 10.25, the promise of Matthew 18.20, and the example of Acts 2.46. So I'm not suggesting that nothing you do matters. But the point Paul is making is this. Be a vegetarian if you want to. Go ahead. But don't think that in so doing, you've improved the condition of your eternal soul. Keep the TV off on Sunday if you must, but don't think that in so doing, you have enhanced your justification. Now, the legalist, I mean, you're, if you are, you're already like, oh, I got to find a different church. <laughs> but this is what he's saying. Uh, avoid refined carbohydrates if you've read the literature that says having sugary shards of glass ripping through your arteries is not good for your overall health and well-being. But don't think that in so doing, you've now been enabled to judge everyone else. <laughs> what freedom did dying with Christ afford you? Now that you're free in Christ, what do you want to do? Or... Are you not free? It's one or the other, right? And listen, I get it. I know why, I understand why Jews struggled with this dietary stuff. I mean, you've got, da not David, Daniel standing counter to the culture in the opening chapters of the book named for him, right? refusing to eat the king's food because it would have defiled him. And he's commended for it. God blesses him for it. And remember, the whole narrative is, he says, let, let us just eat vegetables. And the guy in charge of these Hebrew 
young men is like, no, you're going to waste away to nothing if you just eat vegetables. And Daniel's like, give us, try it for 10 days and see if we still look healthy or not. And now, fascinatingly, the measure of what looked healthy in ancient times is a little different than what it is today. Because after 10 days of eating nothing but vegetables, they were fatter. Just throwing it out there. Uh, at any rate, he's commended for it, right? God blesses him for his obedience, for refusing to defile himself. And then, and then you come to the New Testament and you've got Jesus saying, it doesn't matter what you eat. And you've got Paul saying, why do you subject yourself to elemental spirits of the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And you go, well, hold on. Because I was about this point in my Bible, like, what, everything changed? It all got flipped on its head? Nothing in the Old Testament matters? So Paul was very helpful, very kind to us. He said, look, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the picture that Paul is painting for us is one where here's Jesus standing at, at his entrance into humanity, right? When he became a man. There's, there is light shining against the book of Matthew and it casts this Jesus-shaped shadow back into the Old Testament. And when you're in the shadow of Christ, cast by the light of Christ in reality, things like food, drink, who you can marry, these things matter because it's all the evidence you have that Jesus is coming. But once he comes and you're standing in his light, you don't scurry back to the shadow. You stay in the light of Jesus Christ. These things were a shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to him. So the dietary restrictions in the Old Testament had a temporal function. He's come. They served their purpose. If you died to things that don't matter anymore, why live as though they do matter? And here's the answer. The question was, if you've died to things that don't matter, why live as though they do matter? And here's the answer. Like the electrical conduit, the water pipe, and the O-ring in the fuel injector, you didn't realize what you were doing. You did it inadvertently. You thought you were stopping the indulgence of your flesh. You thought by keeping these rules and regulations, you were being a good Christian. All right, now, so what regulations does Paul have in mind? Oh, the legalist is like, okay, He's going to make the differentiation. Here's the only differentiation I'll make. The regulations Paul has in mind are all the ones that make us think we're improving our standing with God. All of them. Whatever you do that you think makes you a better Christian, that's the regulation Paul has in mind. There's only one thing you can do that will improve your standing with God, and that's have faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's all you can do. The rules we devise, the moral good we try to do, the severity to our own bodies that we invent as a means to address the problem of the human condition don't work because the problem of the human condition is a rebellious, self-satisfied heart. The problem is you would rather do anything other than simply bow down and ask God for forgiveness. You'd rather prove your worth than admit your need. We would rather prove our worth than admit our need. And God insists that you admit 
your needs. So in 1 John 1, 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. In 9, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse you and to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Here's the kicker. For the Christian, there was a time we confessed our sin and admitted our need. But this infernal tendency creeps in. We still sin, right? Because we want to, right? Yeah, you, come on. You've never stand and been like, I really didn't want to do that. No, no. You definitely wanted to do it. Nobody sins under compulsion. We still sin because we want to, and then immediately we start feeling that emotional hangover. The weight of guilt, the burden of shame, and the icy tendrils of fear start to wrap around our hearts. And for some reason, rather than confess, we say, let me just fill in the blank. Let me just, let me just see what I can do to impress God. And you start adding regulations where relationship is supposed to be. Or maybe you're, you didn't. Maybe you didn't sin in some obvious way. Maybe you've been trucking along just fine. And then uh, this, is, this might be more common, okay? You're trucking along just fine, walking with Jesus. And you see someone else's Christianity, and it's different from yours. Like the way that they have their Christianity is different from the way that you have yours. So they do, uh, they, they do some things you don't do, and they don't do some things that you do do. They tell you in secret uh, that, that, that deeper spiritual life is found in their regulations. This is some discovery that they've made. We only sing hymns. We never golf on Sunday. We don't watch movies. We don't play video games. We homeschool. We fast once a week. We tithe from our spice rack. And what Paul says is, listen, this is so important. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Oh, it just it makes you squirm and you're like, I need to go find a preacher who will make me feel worse. There's something wrong here. I need some regulations. That's your Bible. That's your Bible that just said that. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So regulations, we're almost done, have the appearance of wisdom. They promote self-made religion. They promote scraping humility. They promote severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Regulations don't stop sin. So me standing up here and hollering and yelling and wiping my sweaty fat neck with a hanky is not going to make you sinless. It just isn't. I can't berate you into not sinning. I can't regulate you into not sinning. This is the whole function of the law of Moses. Proven to be 
worthless other than as a diagnostic. If you could keep the law, there would be no need for Jesus to come. Adding your own nonsense regulations to the law that was clearly laid out is less worthy than that which was already provided. And yet here we, you know, come up with all kinds of new stuff that we're going to try to do. Regulations don't stop sin. They just paint sin with virtue's colors. Relationship with the true and living God? Well, that stops sin. It really does. And relationship with God is only found in abiding in Christ. That's it. So the challenge to us today isn't new, and I like I can't make it sound new. I didn't even really try. Some of you are like, we know. Um, Jesus is calling you out of frenetic religious activity, and the Holy Spirit is guiding you out of your DIY regulatory system. Your Father in Heaven loves you. So be in relationship with him. And you will find, man, crazy enough, you want to sin a whole lot less. Let's pray.